Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Tola Ayula. Tola is an experienced HR senior practitioner, a business leader, an executive coach, mentor and public speaker. She's worked for the UK civil service since the early 90s and is currently seconded from the cabinet office to the role of head of leadership and capability at the Greater London Authority. So welcome Tola. (laughs) Thank you very much Melody. So great to catch up with you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really looking forward to this. So um, uh, I always love talking to you. So I'm really excited to interview you for, I think people are going to love this um, and love you of course. Um, But can you tell us who you are? Tell us a bit about what you're doing for work. Yeah, delighted. And and thanks for inviting me. It's it's a privilege uh, from what I know about you, Melody. So I'm in a privileged position to be here. So thank you for allowing me to share my story. Uh, my name is Omatola Oluwafumilayo Ayola, which you may not know, my middle name. And I introduced myself as that uh, since, I guess, uh, some of the events that we're going to be probably talking mm. about uh, later today. Um Um, And that's really about me um, really embracing and immersing myself in my identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that often prompts questions. So I like to introduce myself as that. So I am currently head of leadership and capability at the Greater London Authority. And for those that don't know, it's the mayor's office at City Hall. Um, I'm currently seconded from the cabinet office. Um, why I used to do a role um, around talent and leadership in the cabinet office. So it's fair to say that I'm still doing something that I love, but in a different context and in a different environment. And in fact, um, I have much more uh, leadership responsibility. In fact, I'm part of the what they call the senior leadership team, the top 200. So I feel like I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> that badge <laughs> I've got that badge SLT <laughs> I'm part of that now um, yes yeah, so I'm, I'm now responsible for uh, many people so you know I feel that you know um, whilst I have been looking to role models I'm probably one of those role models that yeah. people are now looking up to so there is a bit sort of more of a responsibility and a, a, a bit more rigor in, in what I do and so do you work in the fancy fancy armadillo building? Is it called the armadillo or did I make that up? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> see, there, there, there was the armadillo building at London Bridge. They've, it's a, there's a similar uh, design in East London, which is at ah. the Victoria Docks. They moved last year uh, during COVID to a new building. Um, but it's equally mad design as well. Um, and it's overlooking the river just by Canning Town. It's absolutely wonderful. It's just by uh, where you can get the cable car across from uh, North Greenwich right through to the Victoria Docks. It's absolutely beautiful. So, yes, I am right there um, sitting, um, you know, sort of 
opposite room to where Sadiq sits. Um, we often see him uh, milling around and he'll often say hello uh, to um, many of the people that he works with. Brilliant. Uh, uh, I had no idea that they'd moved um, offices. They so have moved. Go. A lot of people don't know that. No. So it was, it's a really good plug. So for the people who want to go to City Hall, it is in E16, there not in go. London Bridge. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> good to have that clarity. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. So let's, um, I'm going to take you back to, um, you've got, we've got some great things to talk about, I think. And we're going to take you right back to when you were a kid um growing up uh in london tell us a bit about where you grew up some of your experiences yeah so i i'd first like to say that you know i i was born from sort of nigerian parents and you know this is quite significant for me um being uh born to a, a 22 year old mother at the time um and in fact she had uh, my brother who was born 11 months before me um, at 21. So if you can imagine, you know, mm. my mum married uh, mother uh, at 22 with two young children growing up on um, a council estate in New Addington. Now, I had no idea about what things were labelled um, when we was growing up. All I know is that I didn't think that we were poor but I knew that there were people that were more privileged than me. Mm -hmm. And why I knew this was, you know, I had a, a warm bed to sleep in. I had stuff to eat, even though they may have been, you know, not branded. I had clothes to wear um, and they were decent, but not the latest fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and growing up on that council estate, two Nigerian parents um, I had a, a very um, you know a good sense of what my parents expected of us so culture wise it was really important and it was very bashed into our heads I guess not literally um, but the education is key because mm -hmm. my parents had come from really strict education and my mum in fact came over and finished her education when she was 16, but had to wait until she was 18 to get a career or get a um, the green light to actually start her midwifery training mm. program at 18. Um, but she had finished all her education at 16, which showed the level of education that was in Nigeria compared to the UK. And it's really interesting hearing that dynamic now that everybody wants to come to the UK for a better education. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, there was there was some, you know, so that, you know, and I, I didn't recognise that until I was older, that that story. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that later. But, you know, my mum came for education. My dad was a postman at the time and he was uh, studying to be um, an accountant. And so his his money as a, a postman was just to to, to, to get money in. Uh, whilst he was doing that and mum was in midwifery so I just remember um, going to school as I said with all these wonderful array of children we had black children we had white children we had Indian children we had all sorts of 
different types of people going to school. But I remember my mum saying, you are not going to Overbury, which was literally five minutes away from us. You have to walk half an hour to go to Fairchild's High School, which was a bit further because maybe my parents felt that that was a better option for us. I don't know at the time. All I know is that we had to pass Overbury, which was quite daunting because we wore our Fairchild's um, um, uniform and the Overbury people didn't like Fairchild's. So from a very early age, we had to defend ourselves. <laughs> and this was not, there was nothing to do with my identity. It was just to do with a uniform, yeah. you know, the identity of a uniform and you were just the enemy. So we found ways and me and my brother found ways of how to, 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 to manage that situation. And I think that we just became resilient from that moment on. Mm. Every morning to school, we had to deal with that. And coming back, we had to deal with that. Right. So and there was no other way of, you know, there was no other different way um, of, 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 of walking up and down, um, you know, to and from school. Did Tola, did your parents know that you had that? basically hassle each way did you tell them no we did not tell them at all because we didn't think it was we just thought it was just the norm no. we didn't know that that was anything special we didn't have fights we often watched fights that happened between the Overbury and Fairchild's people but we never got involved in it we might mm. watch it but we never got involved in it but we were able to defend ourselves with taunts you know mm. about you know you you should you shouldn't be wearing that uniform why are you passing why are you passing our school you only live down the road and you're mm. you know all of that kind of thing you know, we were able to defend ourselves, but I was always with my brother. My brother was always my protector and my mum maybe had an inkling, but she wouldn't tell us. Take Toller by the hand because I was the reckless one. My brother was mm -hmm. the sensible one. And do not let her go until she is deposited in the school, <laughs> you know. And that was my mum's uh, command to my brother. And he 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 did that to the letter so as soon as I was outside the door he would grab my arm like this and march me to school and would not let me go until that 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 happened so that's that's how I was protected which was quite interesting and and again I perhaps didn't think that we were poor because we never had to pay school dinner monies although I feel that if my mum had known the system she would have she would have she would have qualified for it Mm. Right. Because, you know, all, all I remember is my mum to teach us discipline. She used to put the money each day for all of us. So my mum's my money and my brother's mo Monday money was on the windowsill and up to Friday. So mm -hmm. we had to make sure to just take the money for our dinner for those particular days. And that taught us discipline, mm. not to take more money than we... I didn't realise all of it, but there were some sensible lessons that my mum taught us as we was gr gr growing up. And so, you know, we would take our money and we would, you know, feel quite good because there were other kids that couldn't. They had to have free school meals. And, you know, and in my head, I, I thought gosh why do they have to have free school meals but didn't think too much of it we just that was just some of the things that they did mm. and um we were in a school where it didn't bother us so much because you know we I had Janice 
Janice Braithwaite, who was a white kid who became my best friend, who was very rich, who I, I didn't realise, but they were, they were quite privileged because they lived in Homestead Way, which was away from the estates of New Addington. And I often used to go to her house afterwards and she was very bright. So my mum was quite keen for me to continue to have a relationship with them because they were very into education and all that kind of thing. And then I had some of my black friends who was into dance music. And I had so I had kind of like a two way kind of it, it, it was almost like two gangs of groups of friends um, which was interesting in itself but I loved both lives I liked both lives so when we used to come together at dinner Janice used to bring her sandwiches in because her mum used to make all of this wonderful banana sandwiches with um, breakaway crunches I mean it sounds really silly curly whirly Chris these were I can't remember the make of the Chris um it wasn't walkers because it never used to be walkers at the time, but it was a famous make. But I cannot remember. But she used to always have those crisps. And then we used to have our dinner money, which, goodness, mum, if she ever watches this podcast, we never used to go to dinner. We used to spend it on. <laughs> we used to go to the shops. Don't let her know. <laughs> spend it. And spend it on sandwiches, biscuits, all kind of things, you know, because the dinners, the school dinners, we never really used to like. And then we used to all sit down and club together and eat, right? That's kind of what we did. She used to lay her sandwiches. I used to lay my food. We used to, and we used to just, you know, in one, you know, white, black, Indian, whatever, we used to sit together and we used to eat. So that was, that was kind of the, the, the 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 way in which we started to um, get together to speak about the differences in what we had, you know, and then I, we used to notice how um, Janice used to always have the latest kind of clothing where we used mm -hmm. we used to have to wear the same and make it last you know so mm -hmm. if there was a hole in our jumpers my mum would quickly go and darn it there wasn't anything new about it your shoes had to last for the whole you know for the whole semester your blazer everything don't grow out of it you know so you'd always get the two sizes bigger to, to make sure that it fit <laughs> and all that kind of thing you know um so it was you know so those are the things that I noticed you know in terms of aesthetically as children child young child's minds go but in terms of you know my blackness and people's whiteness it was only really ever noticeable through teachers which is really mm. interesting through adults the most that the most discrimination we had was fatism we used to call people oh you are quite big and you know people used to mock people that were big mm. bigger than them conversely as well the only other taunts that used to happen at school were people like me who sometimes came in with an African hairstyle they used to call it a spider so they used to my mum used to braid my hair but they used to do it with cotton mm. and that was normally not with white people it was with my own Caribbean because there was a strong separation when I was growing up between Caribbean and African kids nobody wanted to associate with being African, which was really interesting. And, you know, all the features, everybody would identify with European features. The more European you look, the more beautiful you look, the mm -hmm. more 
African centric you were, the the less likely you were to have a boyfriend or anything like that, which was which was very interesting. And that really affected me in more ways than I would want to even appreciate, mm. you know, and I know that it affected me because of the things that I did later in life that where I wanted to be more white, mm. where I wanted to just be accepted. But those significant moments in my life really shaped the way and the the journey that I've gone on through school. Now, at school, it was really interesting, our curriculum, because my mum, when I came back, was always very interested in what 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 are you being taught you know why why am I not hearing what you're being taught you know because she was used to an education in Nigeria where they'd you know teachers would liaise with the with the with the with the parents etc etc and always keep people updated and you know we didn't know so my mum's expectation was like why aren't you getting this why aren't you getting any homework and we were like I don't know you know so my mum would be up the school and I'd be I'd be so embarrassed because I'd be like why you're the only mum that's going to the school to ask for these things nobody else is bothered right and so you know it became like that kind of resentful child that you know your mum was the uh, the only one that <laughs> embarrassing mum <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but that you know I appreciate all that now but of course at the time I didn't yeah. So my mum would be up the school asking for homework, this, that and the other and da 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 and how how your child is doing. And I remember my the, the, the teacher saying Tola is really, really bright, but she's very disruptive and she, you know, she's um she's she's always talkative in class, you know, and that that kind of thing. And you know, later on found out A, I was bored, B, I hated maths because maths they didn't teach us in my view the application of maths but when my dad taught maths it was fantastic because we taught the application so he'd be like you know if I give you this money and you spent this how much are you going to have to spend on sweets right you know so that that, that <laughs> kind of, you know he, he he knew how to motivate us right so it was it was kind of you know it was a practical moment and then in um in literature there was things like you know Macbeth and those kind of things and I didn't really understand the the thy though I didn't understand that language I understood English but I didn't understand why we were going into that the purpose Mm. of it um and so but when I went to see the play oh my goodness I was I was uh, I was like I was sold my mum took us to the play and I was like I understand it now yeah right totally they just didn't no, just it's so different. One way, yeah. When it's written, it's I, I hundred percent. I find with Shakespeare, if you, um, if you listen to it within a few minutes, you don't even notice that it's not in regular English, do you? Whereas reading it, it's much harder. Yeah, I couldn't, and then that made me think about, you know, not then at the time, but afterwards. We learn in different ways. And if if the school insists on developing curriculum one way and teaching one way, we're always going to miss out on teaching. The whole point of teaching is to capture the classroom. And it doesn't that means that you have to deliver things in different ways. Right. You know, so bring reading, bring 
the the practicalness you know bring a photo um um video clips it, it, there's no excuse these days not to learn in different mm -hmm. ways and apply things in different ways so people can be confident in that they're learning and aren't stupid because I mm -hmm. began to think that I'm really stupid I can't get this you know but it was only my parents that that started to what do you do and then used to take us oh what about Chinese my dad would take us to a Chinese restaurant and you know there was all these things I didn't know that <clears throat> my parents were doing to help facilitate our learning mm. because they knew that that was not happening in school right i have a couple of questions from things that you've said um you said uh, earlier that um you know between the kids you know there were actually very few kind of biases and taunts between them but you saw it through the teachers and i just wonder can you give an example of that yeah so um I remember reading, I was sitting in an English literature class and I had read things like 1984, The Go-Between, which is a love story, Macbeth and something else. And I'd read, I, I, would, I would read quite quickly, notwithstanding the fact that I didn't really like reading unless it was, I could, you know, see, a, see something. I didn't really get it, but I did quite like a love story. So when I read these books, the teachers would, you know, would I would cut, go into class and just sit there because I'd read it and the others hadn't read it, you know. So they would give me and I would say, why are we not reading things that relate to my culture? Because my mum said, blah, 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 blah. And I think this is my interpretation and that just made, you know, and I, as a child, I was quite rude, you know, so <laughs> I didn't deal with it in the best way right mm -hmm. so I would be just a, just angry all the time and so I think to shut me up because I was just taught in the teachers they gave me this book and I just remember seeing a black face on this book which I had never ever seen before I've never seen a book with a black face on it for, for all through my childhood and I just remember, and I don't know why I felt really angry. I felt really angry because I felt I'm the only one that's been given this book. Why me? Why isn't the whole class being given this book? I, I just felt very confused by it. Mm. And up to this day, I don't even know what the title is because I refused to read it. Mm. And I was sent out of the class. I remember. And this teacher was a black woman. And so... I just remember her in my head thinking she's a black woman, but she's a white woman. If you, if you, if you, I, I just didn't feel that she was, she identified with my Nigerian culture mm -hmm. or the, indeed the black culture, but that was my perception. And I, I it was a definitely a wrong perception, but because I am so used to people explaining things to me, I didn't understand what she was trying to do. And it was only later on through conversations that she had with my mom and my dad and others that we began to understand what she was doing. But I think that children growing up in those days, you were seen but not heard. Even the Nigerian community, it was like, you know, you had a front room. This is where the adults, um, you know, communicated and spoke. But you really were there to kind of, oh, do you want Coke or do you want tea or do you want, you know, and then serve the people and 
be quiet. You were not engaged in their competition and, unless you were invited. Mm. The, you know, children would play and do their own thing. You just weren't. And I think that was the era. So, you know, but I wanted more from that. I did not feel that that was acceptable or um, that that was too confusing for me because I, I, I'm a practical person. I need to understand the reason why. And I would always rebel against that whereas my brother would take it my brother was very much oh Tola just 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 do just do as they ask I'd be like no I I don't understand it you know so I would be called the Webble child and my my brother was the model child mm -hmm. so if you can imagine <laughs> is that still how the two of you are described <laughs> um, yeah probably but my mum knows me more so she knows that I will always, you know, mum, you know, you're, you're always, you're, what, what does she say? You never agree on anything. I said, I never agree because I need to understand mum, you oh. know. So, you know, and I, and I said, just because I don't agree with uh, one's opinion, it doesn't mean that we can't get on. I think that we just have to say that we have different opinions and move on. I don't understand this. You must agree with me or, you know, I don't I just don't understand that, you know. I, I maybe I was a philosopher in, a, in, 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 in my in my previous in my previous upbringing, but I've always had that. And when my mum starts, starts to study all the ologies, because my mum studied physiology, sociology, psychology, all of the ologies, because she became a mental health nurse through my education mm. and started to study mental health, then began to understand a bit more about learning and then she did her MBA and you know she started to to move into that space wow. and it was really interesting how her views changed you know on this because culturally it can be actually in conflict with you know with with what with 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 some of the sort of learning and teaching and how people learn you see so yeah she was battling with some of that as well as well um my second question is around you talked around that um, difference between uh, Black Caribbean, Black African, and how there was, you know, I don't know if the right word is competition between the two, but you know, a noticeable difference. Do you think that's, you know, that was when you were a kid, do you experience that today? I No, no, not so much, but I do think there's remnants of it. I think that the, you know, there is still some, what they call colorism. Mm -hmm. And colorism is about the lighter you appear, or the more European uh, you appear, the more people accept you. And this mm. is, you know, this may be conscious or unconscious, um, but you'll see in TV and film, um, the way they cast individuals, you'll see the way um, that it happens in books, less so now, because there's much more children's books that show people who are of different, you know, uh, culture, cultural characteristics and features. Um, and yeah, and, and you know, it, even, um, you know, some of the, uh, my friend's kids will talk about colorism and the fact that guys will often date people that are more European or have got a lighter complexion, although mm -hmm. that it's not everywhere. And I haven't, you know, specifically experience that in my face. But I, I do think that it happens because remember, 
discrimination has mutated and there is much more sophistication around that so sometimes you just can't pinpoint it but you know mm. that when you're all going for certain things and who might get the thing that it is sometimes like that so yeah there is it's 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 harder to 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 highlight unless you get statistics and that takes mm. that's a long thing isn't it but yeah when it happens to an individual over and over again it's really hard yeah. for that person to to, to overcome yeah. you know but for for, for 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 me and for for how we've been brought up if not you then who and if you are, are if we are not trying for the next generation then we are failing ourselves and 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 and, and the, the the next generation of people so that's who we do it for because mm-hmm. when my mum came to this country as you might have seen in the three little birds recent documentary by lenny henry no blacks no irish no dogs my mum lived with that when she came into this country right so had to go through all of that and was very very conscious of us just going to school and coming back you know that's why my mum had this deposit her to school and this is when I expect you back and in fact if you are not back just let us know if you're after school club you know she was very conscious of all of that because she knew what was on the streets you know let's move on thank you for sharing all of that it's just I've just loved hearing it let's move on to the early 90s I think it was when you were working at the Department of Health and Social Security yeah this is really interesting because I guess my my life growing up you know was a was a great life you know we used to play around with 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 kids and have our playtime and you know mum used to call her in for dinner um but at the same time a lot of the people around us were you know were were poor and needed to to get some help from the government and I used to um, help people with their form filling I remember doing that from a young age because people never used to be able to speak English blah 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 so I used to interpret all of that that was just helpful me I just Mm. used to do that I didn't think anything of it so I thought to myself as I was going through education that that's kind of what I wanted to do I wanted to help the more uh, disadvantaged people the people who were uh, the poorest in society to help them whoever they were so when the purpose of me applying for for that was to I could I think fiercely seek justice and and truth because I don't I don't think that like my mum who didn't have a clue about access to the systems um, didn't access the system and there were many others that prevented from accent, um, uh, accent the system because they didn't understand it right so and there wasn't interpreters in those days um, you know the community had to go, go by and help this so I decided that that's what I wanted to do so my early work and I remember the 17th of February 1986 when I started with the Department of Health and Social Security in Bournemouth Road I always remember it was my proudest moment because I thought I've made it I'm going to be able to help all these people who don't have access you know and I can sort out the systems and we can we'll help with all of that (laughs) god boy was I wrong I (laughs) I mean wrong and right um you know so I worked let me let me just 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 pause and just tell you about my application process so even the application process for getting into the department for work and pensions I at the time had more than five 
O levels and two A levels, which is where you had to have your entry point for being what they call was an SEO. So it was a, mm-hmm. it wasn't a junior administrator. I thought it was a senior administrator. Um, at that time, there were no blind recruitment. So my full name, Omato Tola Ayula, was often displayed um, on the recruitment forms. And I just remember just not ever getting, I, I applied for the Department of Social Security at the time, and I applied for many other public sector organisations, including the police. Um, and just remember just getting rejected, rejected, rejected. When I went for a lower pay band, that's when I got an interview mm. for the Department of Um, health and social security and I thought okay I just need to get a job so um, I was interviewed for for that role and got it and got many others but at a lower pay band that I was expecting you know so I just took the first job because the department for um, work and um, health and social security uh, was where I wanted to 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 work Um, now my my early experiences of working um, the Department for Work and Pensions was, wow, there is a lot of people that really need, I mean, really need support. So you had the travelling community, that was kind of one section. You had the single mother community, which was a, a different section. You had the older community that had not been supported in any way community and then you had the people who were disabled and couldn't work uh, community and then you had the working age population for whatever reason couldn't work through well-being or mental health crisis or they were a carer or whatever right so there was that that group and I thought wow this is a lot and then there was the group of people who had no idea that this system existed so there was outreach work that was needed which we didn't have so I guess you know my mission in my head at the time was to yes deal with the people that were coming in and knew about the system but was to do more outreach work so I quickly remember forming some outreach uh, work opportunities so we did um, we did surgeries in several of the places like St Mungo's, like hospitals, like, you know, where people are likely to go for assistance. So so we we set up surgeries in those in those instances, including sort of local councils and where people might sort of complain about things and blah, blah, blah. And that really helped draw up. And we then designed an outreach programme, which is fantastic, which has been prominent ever since as part of the Department of Health and Social Security, uh, Benefits Agency, and now the Department of Work and Pension. They've always had outreach work, which helps with bringing in uh, uh, people who don't often access our service. We we call them the hardest to reach. So I was really pleased about that. Mm -hmm. And it helped my community as well with people getting some of that access that they didn't have we started to um, have interpreters it wasn't that the community had to do it we had to have service interpreters so if anybody wanted anything we would pay for it in our you know in the department for um, health and social security that was absolutely amazing so all of those kind of things started to but if I, I believe that if one hadn't been part of that that would never would have happened, those kind of services. But I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, people listened, I had a voice and there was action and things were done. 
Where do you think that came from? That it sounds like it was a real passion of yours. This this outreach. You you know you said it was your mission. Where did where why what what was it that sparked that? Because I saw people in my community that would have nothing. When we when you're talking about sharing food, my mum would be one of those ones that you know even if she didn't have five shillings or whatever next day she would still share her food with the neighbours right you know because she knew how to make food stretch right on another occasion we'd be in somebody else's house eating but I didn't know if that's because we didn't have any you know you know what I mean so Mm. this is the sorts of things that used to happen I used to think there is something very wrong about I mean it's great for the community but I was sure that there was just something about we're not accessing the things that we should be Mm -hmm. accessing. And that's what happened. You know, that is exactly what happened. People didn't know. My mum was just first generation, had no clue. You had to fend for yourself in Nigeria. So half of these people who are first generation had no clue that there was this system that you could apply. They thought you just had to work and get your money or Mm. you just had to work with your neighbours, which is what they did in Nigeria Mm. and other countries. It's interesting, isn't it? Because your mum really advocated for you in school, it sounds like, you know, she was in there and she was, you know, trying to get the best for you. But and then you then went on and were advocating for your community. You know, in some ways, you're mirroring what your mum did for you. um, Completely. Your community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just, I am very much into if people are given fair opportunities, you'll be able to, everybody will be able to thrive. There will not be that burden. You teach people how to grow themselves and they will grow themselves. If you teach people, if you give them the tools, they'll be able to do that for themselves. And that's all people want. They don't want to be a burden. They just want to be able to do and access things for themselves. And the more that we can help people do that, the more confidence that people will get. And I've seen it. And I've absolutely seen it because I saw it in the community, how people were very, you know, thankful and grateful. My mum would still get gifts for some of the things that she's done for individuals, you know, and the gratitude that people have, mm-hmm. you know, because actually, oh, now my son's done this and my, you know, and then it, and it's it's not just them. It's the next generations that then know about it and then they can mm-hmm. pass it on. And it, and it just becomes a, a learning environment where everybody is teaching everybody to uh, to, to fend for themselves in that way so that is that makes me feel great that that sense of purpose and that pride that you can just go off and do your thing and, and in fact you know generations are, are, are able to thrive just because of knowledge that's been passed mm. and if we don't if we keep it to ourselves that's when you know privilege becomes to the privilege yeah it's escape gatekeeped that's the wrong yeah kept yes <laughs> that's you... right yeah Gate... gatekeepers yes 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 <laughs> I, I don't know what tense i was talking in there let's let's um, <laughs> let's talk about something a bit different um which is around the role that sports have played in your life both as a child but right through to, to now as an adult just say yeah. a bit about you I know will. the importance yeah i will i will um just 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 to close off um the department of health and social security has helped me in many ways they have helped to think about education because i was able to secure my certificate in training practice my 
CIPD and an MBA. So the, mm-hmm. the Department of you know, Health and Social Security has supported my education and training. Mm-hmm. I think that's important to mention. My continual professional development was really, really important to me. Mm-hmm. During that time, because I was very interested in sport, I joined their uh, sports club. They've got a very extensive sports club. And so my interest in sport or my continued interest in sport, I guess, stemmed from school because I was always a 100 metre and 200 metre runner. And I was in the three A's, what they call three A's championships then. I was quite a super, uh, you know, uh, uh, runner. At 13, I think I did 12.9 seconds for my 100 metres. And that was pretty good in those days. Um, And so... I thought, wow, that that that's that's fantastic. And then I got introduced to my fourth year at the time, basketball teacher who taught us how to play basketball. And that was my interest in basketball. I've always played netball, which is, you know, fantastic. Um, and then basketball, you know, so I thought this is fantastic. So when I left school, I thought to myself, well, you know, I really need to keep this up, you know, because we were at school, we beat everybody at netball. We were just superb you know we had a great team I was always chosen a captain don't know why maybe I was a bit bossy but I my ability to bring out the potential in people I think people saw but I didn't see Mm. it as that I just felt it's not bossy it's showing leadership I really have this thing about the word bossy and women yeah women are called bossy they're not it's leadership it's it's very 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 true and now I see it as leadership and that's what people saw in me and that's why I was chosen. But I didn't recognise it as that because I'm always vocal. I'm I'm like, you know, I knew all the positions. I knew where people needed to be praised and I knew some of the things that needed to be worked on. And I was not afraid to say them, including my own. Right. And um, and so all through because because athletics was a very individual sport. It was just about me, mm. all about me, you know, nothing about anybody else, right? Uh, so when I went into team sport, it really taught me about the team dynamics and how to work with a team. So being chosen for captain, um, you know, helped and I guess built on my leadership capabilities, both in netball and in basketball. After school, um, after the, you know, I'd kind of finished school, I decided, you know, for my fourth year teacher introducing me to basketball, I thought, this is amazing. I absolutely love basketball. I loved the freedom that it gave. As netball, you have your set positions. Mm. um, And the fact that I can be shooter, I can be defence, I can jump, I can twist people up, I can be have a bit of attitude, you know, and that was my sport. And I thought, this is brilliant. So I decided to find a, um, a club outside. And I just remember trawling through the yellow pages at the time <laughs> <laughs> you remember yellow pages Melody? yeah i can't even think there would be <laughs> women's basketball clubs in the yellow pages i know, I know. and then that, there wasn't there was sports clubs so i just thought let me look at sports clubs in london so i did and i just remember thinking okay brixton basketball so i called them up and i said do you have any basketball teams and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we have something called Brixton Basketball Club, um, Brixton Topcats. And um, yeah, and I said, oh, you know, how do I get involved? And they gave me the details and told me when to come down. So I remember coming down uh, to uh, one of Brixton sessions and thinking, 
Oh my god, there's no way that I'm gonna get into this team. They are they are professional. You know what you're just like because I've literally just come out of school, just learned it for one year, you know, just the fundamentals and the basics, but nothing compared to what I saw. And I thought <gasps> right, but I thought, oh my god. So I remember thinking, so that first time I just went home despondent, didn't speak to anybody. I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. But something told me I've got to go back next week and I've got to say what I can give. Right. I've got to say because I'm very I was very confident in my running. I was very confident in my netball um, speed and, and my ball handling. And I began to think about what I can contribute, but what I needed. Right. Mm. So I, I formulated a plan to speak to this Jimmy, who was the head coach. So I went back the following week and I said, Jimmy, I'd love to um, be able to be part of this club. I said, this is what I have. I said, I can beat all of your girls for running speed, guaranteed. I said, I've got good ball handling skills, but I really need to be taught how to how to play the basketball how to <laughs> you know I said but I, I I'm I'm willing to learn um you know I know that you do it three times a week and stuff like that he goes okay show us what you got right so I had to come so we the first that I just remember fundamentally the first thing we had to do was what we call shuttle runs so the shuttle runs had to be done in 30 seconds right so that means you know so you've got the whole of the court and there there's three uh, transverse line so you had to go to the first transverse line back second transverse line back third transverse back and that's what we did and we had to do that in 30 seconds I did it well within and I beat everybody and I was standing waiting for the rest of them because I thought yeah that's 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 what I said that I can do so I'm fantastic so he was just like he was looking at me thinking and he said well, are you a runner I said yeah I'm a 100 meter runner 100 meter sprinter blah 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 he goes okay so um and then we had to do some ball skills I was fine with those and then came the shooting. Oh, my God. I was atrocious. <laughs> because at the time, I played centre for netball. I didn't play goal attack. Oh, and of course, in netball, there's only two positions, aren't there? Exactly, that can shoot? exactly. Yeah. So um, I just remember, you know, bouncing this ball hardly. I kept losing the ball, bouncing it, because and then I kept looking down. He's like, look up. I was like, oh, I don't even know. What, what am I doing? <laughs> anyway, I was bad at it the ball just went you know blang like if you can imagine the the noise of a backboard it went bang right and <laughs> back at me nowhere near the post <laughs> and all the and all the and all the players were looking and thinking she's good at everything else but she bloody terrible at this anyway so after after those after that first session jimmy said to me fantastic at running got some things to do with your ball handling because you know you know he, he talked about that and you just need to practice on your shooting are you willing to come three times a week and blah 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 are you willing to turn up on time are you willing to this is the cost of the thing and you know we'll we'll see we'll see how how you get on I was just like elated I was just like yeah to even be accepted that gave me the confidence I think to just ask for what you want because people can either say yes or no that for me was I was just amazed to be and this Brixton Topcats was like a super duper team and I 
was been chosen and I didn't think that I was even ready to do it but by virtue of admitting what strengths I had and maybe where I felt he could help and the club could help me that was it and I went I went for it and the rest is history I got into the national squad you know you know I got into the uh, you know I played with with the England netball girls I mean things just things just moved leaps and bounds for me and it it's funny what confidence does for you and actually how others see you because when they see you oh my god she was part of Brixton basketball and she's 100 meter runner can we have her on our our highest accolade you know and I was able to play for Super League which is now um what well, was called Super Cup it's now called Super League netball playing with the England girls that they do on Sky Sports I did all of that at Brunel University with netball as well as doing basketball you know so I kind of did both and straddled both played for county um, did all those kind of things so um, and I've traveled the world as a result of it um, you know I've traveled we played against the Jamaican uh, national squad and there was this lady called cricket we used to call her cricket because she was a goal shooter and her legs used to start from outside the circle and end up inside the circle because that's how <laughs> long her legs were <laughs> she was she was absolutely amazing but it's helped me to develop my love for uh, travel and sport together mm. which I continue to do now and the latest trip that I've done was uh, South Africa where they had the world championships and I was part of the delegation and that means that we uh, sit there to help develop international netball and sport and I'm now one of the de delegate you know delegations uh, or delegates making uh, judgment and um, voting on specific things to enhance the sport which is absolutely fantastic I've never done that before mm. but you know it was it's it's just how you contribute in a different way as you get older I can't no longer be that player I'm a bit too old but I still play netball um, I can't play internationally but I'm still involved in international sport by doing some of these other things mm. so my drive and my focus and the way in which I learn sport has really helped me you know how to be a leader how to work in teams the analogy that I use has always been you know it's quite shrouded in practical terms for me the team of seven in a basketball squad is not just the team of seven you see it's the people on the bench it's the coaches it's the physios it's the people that do the technical stuff it's the the people that get the people in to the operation in the first instance when I worked for London 2012 which was part of my journey I worked on, I was leading on the wheelchair tennis for the Paralympic sports and I was in charge of the water polo arena and I got to understand behind the scenes, right? So what is it like, you know, um, as an events person to manage the whole scene? Because I had to, you know, I was responsible for making sure, first of all, that the the building was built right so I had to work with the architects because our water polo arena wasn't even built when I got there and then thinking about the access routes for the athletes and the sports people and then the others and then working out the amount of people that are required working out the training working out all the different functions that we're going to have to uh, work with you know sports press all of those it 
began to make me think about the operation end to end. So it was a very different appreciation of who needs to be thanked behind my single person who's the athlete. You know, there was much more to it, you know. So I always say to people, you know, try to really get to grips with the mm. whole of your industry because it's very interesting if you're interested in that um, to try and expand one's knowledge and that for me has expanding my sporting knowledge apart from you know sort of my own leadership and you know fabulous right i'm gonna um jump you to when we first met uh which is when you were at the cabinet office uh leading the meta scheme tell us about the meta scheme yeah melody and, it, and what a great experience it was melody i mean i remember working at the cabinet office in 2016 after being what they called co-sopped from civil service resourcing and that just meant you know kind of just moving people from one area of the business to another and working with the talent team and um, looking at how we can identify talent with the amount of people that we had was quite a fe feature. One of the great things about working at the time is the cabinet office were very much and the government of the day were very much into how we identify and accelerate people's development um, in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and they already had a programme uh, for senior leaders, which was called the Senior Leaders Scheme. And they had just developed a similar programme for people to enter the Senior uh, Civil Service, which was called the Future Leaders Scheme. And then there was all these other positive action schemes that were sort of dotting around the place. What we felt that did was have a system where we were, people were self-selecting themselves onto these things. So rather than have kind of one entry point for people that wanted to get into senior civil service and or people that wanted to go through the senior civil service, we had different avenues, which in certain instances is not a bad thing. But we felt that the positive action schemes were trying to do the same things. So the Minority Ethnic Talent Association, which was originally set up before I came in, was a standalone positive action scheme. And it had its own remit, which was to accelerate the development of talented ethnic minorities into the senior civil service. When you looked at FLS, it was the same thing. So we thought, in my view, when I came onto this, let's merge this. Let's have one selection and assessment system for everyone, recognising that there are specific barriers that perhaps are faced by ethnic minorities. But we would work on that through the programme because not only do ethnic minorities need to understand how to navigate themselves around this, those in positions of power will need to understand this too. So how can we share this information? right so the idea of having that merged both schemes fls and meta merged would bring together the two schemes so the meta program was born out of many years of of that development but again my thing was always about how can we integrate share and learn how can we all be responsible for the development 
of everyone. So I remember I just was so excited about this program because all I was hearing was, oh, if you're a black person, you never go on. Oh, if you don't, I mean, all of this negative stuff and it was just doing me head in. And I thought, let's celebrate some of the things that we do do. And, you know, let's do something about the things that need to change. Come on. Right. So, right. So I was all for that because I am, you know, through my sporting background, it's all about development. It's all about, you know, the small margins, you know, creating big things. Right. So, you know, and then noticing that, celebrating that and moving on from it. Right. So I wanted to use this model. In, in my meta program. So I was obviously convincing <laughs> uh, through the board because when I'm when I'm passionate about something, I think, you know, you, you, you of course you have to get data and the data spoke for itself and the research and all, you know, it was easy to find that, right? And then the fact that this was aligned to what government, you know, and the, and the cabinet office wasn't, it was just a no brainer. So I just pulled together something which was a triumph. So the... FLS was already a triumph. The SLS was already a triumph. So I thought to myself, let's merge it. So what we did was um, encourage, there was so much work that needed to be done from across the business area. So the people that were in charge of, you know, um, the programs, which was, you know, the future leaders and the senior leaders program and the people that were recording and monitoring and the, and the leaders that were inside the businesses across all the businesses needed to understand where we were all going. Um, and, you know, and I'm telling you, there was such a collective activity of this being a success. Of course, you have the people that don't want this to succeed. And there were all of those things. We're not denying that. There'll always be that. But the majority of people, you know, were, were into the fairness, truth and justice theme. So the first program, which started in 2017, we got 41 participants. So 41 participants were from an ethnic and minority background, right? So these people were given the opportunity to get through the FLS program. Not everybody wanted to accept the Meta program. There was more people. There was about 14 people that said, I'd rather just do the other thing. You mm. know, I don't want to be. And there was something in that too. But mm. 41 people on the first, 61 on the second and 61 on the third. And it's still continuing now. Although I know that they're looking at how to uh, create that in a different space. But it's been absolutely successful. And the, 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 the single most thing that people say that they got from the Meta program was whilst they were going through the, the main future leaders or senior leaders or high potential leadership program, because Meta was integrated into all of those specific areas mm. of the program. What they liked about Meta is that it created a safe space for them to be able to discuss and talk about their experiences of being a leader in that organization, being a black leader, being a, um, an Asian leader, being whatever it is that they wanted to discuss and how they felt things were progressing or not for progressing and what sort of intervention was, re was required. And bring, being in that safe space allowed people to freely talk. I've never heard that some of these what some some of these senior leaders were facing and they felt that they couldn't talk to their 
their junior members of staff mm. because they were supporting them in the same things that they were experiences and experiencing and needed to be strong for them. So it's really important, you know, and I'll, and I'll say this to, to, to anybody that's working across the diversity and arena, that it's really important that we check in with all our leaders that, you know, have special characteristics, I would suggest. And those, you know, from the ethnic minority, those who have a disability, those who are carers, whatever it is that sparks in your organisation really needs to, to, to be considered. Because what we learned from having those groups of people is that there was still some worrying, you know, kind of discrimination that happens, especially for senior leaders. And that is junior staff to senior leader you know, mm. and there were, you know, and, and, and all of that had to be stamped out. But we would never have got that mm. information had we not had some of these carefully considered, you know, safe spaces where we could have such conversations. And also what the the Meta programme did was to share that information, not necessarily by them, but by the programme you know, because I didn't yeah. want people to re-traumatise themselves in any way or feel that they mm -hmm. were obliged to. Many of the themes mm. were brought through and activity and action was brought about. So one example was we had uh, Bina Candola come in and talk to all our senior people about the effects of positive action on organisations. And it was some latest research that Nick Hammerling, um, who was working for Pearl and Candola at the time, shared with the team which made an immense difference to how we operate and how people behave once positive action programs are delivered. Now the work that we did with you uh, and uh, Corn Ferry Hay was bring so much rigour to the conversation. We needed to find a way how to measure, how to report in the right way and all of that stuff Melody and I'll, I'll, I'll never ever forget the candid the honest, the creation, the the way in which we worked through some of the things that we had to in terms mm. of just making sure that our reports were robust, thinking about who are the people that we're getting at the end of the sausage line? Is it right? Is it all analysts? Do we need to change this? All of those kind of conversations, I think, are really, really important to make sure yeah. that we're still getting the right people that we are requiring and those things, you know, working with you and others across the system was just really important. And it's not it's not an easy feat. The goalpost keeps moving. But that's the kind of um, creation that you and I and other uh, people from Corn Ferry Hay were able to, um, to to manage through this process. So I'll never I'll never forget that to me. Mm. Meta was one of my proudest achievements because 70% of that first cohort were all promoted to the senior servers. Many of them I still have contact with. They are CEOs. They've got their own companies. They're doing great things because confidence is such a underused word, but you feel it and you do it and you see others in it and then it just multiplies. Like I talked about my, you know, my community, the, 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 the confidence in how to access things, the next generation of knowledge that know things, you know, creates so much more, you know, and that's why we mm. continue to do the things that we do, you know, and even yourself, Melody, I see you yeah. in your role now doing your own thing. I mean, that pleases me. I will be telling that to others. This is what I mean. <laughs> we, we, we have no idea 
how one story can impact another just share it if you can that's what I say let's move you on then I you know I have similar um feelings about meta actually um and the FLS and my involvement in those talent schemes I think the civil service in many ways is light years ahead of many other organizations in terms of talent and that you know the bringing together of those um, positive action schemes into the main scheme. I've not really seen that anywhere else done in that way and, and so successfully. So similarly, I feel really strongly. And, you know, even if it just meant that I'd met you, I feel I've learned so much from you, from those conversations that we had, very honest and open conversations, just for me is incredibly powerful. And it's something I was saying this to my sister last night. I feel really lucky that I know so many people through doing this, you know, DEI work that who are different to me and I can go yeah. and ask them stupid questions exactly and it's okay to ask those stupid questions because they'll just tell me what they think and and it feels a real privilege to have those connections and and like I say I have a lot of stupid questions but I feel you know I've got some great people around me who let me ask them and, and are kind to me and answer them and I, and I call them curious you know because I, I absolutely love people who are curious because I am the same mm -hmm. you know and you know the question that you have is because one is curious about learning the answer mm -hmm. and what your opinion is and they're interested in you what 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 do you have to say about that isn't that a good thing mm -hmm. I think it's great I feel mm -hmm. privileged when people ask me that I think oh my goodness they want to know my knowledge that gives me such great mm -hmm confidence so you know thank you for all of that and just to think about this curiosity curiosity is great yeah well well speaking of curiosity one of my uh, you know one of the things I asked you to talk about is around your experiences of being a black female leader you know because that's obviously very different to my experience and I you know you've told me stories in the past that have always stuck with me about your experiences and and um, you know, we've also talked about how um, traumatising it could be to keep retelling stories and, um, you know, it's it's exhausting. Um, but I just wondered if you had any stories you wanted to share that, you know, you think the listeners to the podcast would would find interesting. Goodness, it's it's really an interesting question because I guess it kind of sort of, def it depends what one defines as leader and... I think, as I said uh, before in my stories of leadership through sport, through my work with the community, I, I think I felt very confident because I knew, I felt that I knew what I was doing. I was at the top of my game. And I guess you could measure some of that because people came to me. That was it. Um, in my sport, it was measured by your your ability to do it because you know if you're doing stuff in 12.3 seconds if you're shooting eight, 18 points a game nobody can tell you that that's not what you've done nobody can judge on that it is a fact where I think I get problems with my or, or judgment questioned as a leader or even if if, if I'm in fact a leader uh, which is which is a, <laughs> another story is I guess when it came to my consciousness was when I was working in the Department for Work and Pensions and I was leading a team of 25 people and um, my immediate boss was a black man his name was Mr Blackman <laughs> he's in Barbados at the moment but it's Mr Blackman you're a black man um, you know uh, and so when we used to go to meetings 
people used to address us, you know, and I didn't feel anything of it because both of us were black. So I didn't see anything happening. And we were working in Peckham and, you know, that, that area was kind of, you know, quite a number of people from ethnic minorities were around that. So people kind of would expect it. When I, when I was working in Streatham and Fulham, it was a very different story because I then was the leader of a group and I had to front some of these meetings and I would often go with my junior member staff who had to be a male white person. And it was really interesting going to these meetings because they would assume that that white person was the leader and would start rattling off about stuff. And the person used to just have to say, well, Tolu is my boss, so you might want to address, you know, that. And, you know, the person being very uncomfortable and, and very embarrassed and going very red at their assumptions. But that was not never just a one-off incident. Incident It used to happen quite frequently. Now, some people would shrink and get angry and stuff like that. But actually, it gave me this kind of weird, I don't know what they call it, weird sense of power, the sense of silent power. I don't know what it was, but I, I used to just, in my head, I used to think, this is not my problem. This is this is your problem. And I hope that you're learning from this. I really do hope that you're learning from this because I will say nothing because I know that you're embarrassed anyway because of the redness in your face. So I will not continue with that. But whilst you're having a conversation with me, you are going to know that I am a, I, I know what I'm doing. You know, you have made an assumption. You quickly need to think about that. And let's get on with the meeting. And that's that's in my head. That's why. So and I, but I used to speak about that in my own groups. Right. Not necessarily to, the, you know, because people used to experience things like that. And we used to talk about how we deal with those kind of things, you know, because some people mm. would be angry and, you know, would confront them and things like that. And then it wouldn't be the, the a great meeting. My mum has come across that quite often. And I've seen her get frustrated at home even though she hasn't confronted or she would my mum is very good with the English language and so her words will be very direct and very would let them know that actually I'm the sister here and I'm in charge mm-hmm. and you do not need to address my 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 junior because I'm in charge here so I suggest that if you want this done you go through me through me I await your response something like that she would confront it but in a very Mm. you know so I've learned in my growing up I think there was kind of a warped sense of how to kind of deal with some of these because when she used to bring some of these things back home I was just thinking oh my goodness mum how did you deal with that you know and so the the way in which my dad used to deal with it was a bit more (laughs) rugged (laughs) you know so my dad had a kind of very well you know you just you you just tell them or fight it out you know that kind of thing so my mum had the kind of discursive my dad would be like no 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 punch their lights out or whatever it was you know but you know um he he, you know he didn't but it was more it was more forceful you know he would you, you know so I think that um dealing with I was always very conscious when going into a, a meeting, being the leader, and I would always feel that I had to acknowledge my place. And I don't know whether that's because of what I was thinking and feeling beforehand, because they need to know I'm the leader. So I'd, I'd grab it. You know what I mean? Was yeah. Mm. So that that kind of maybe shaped my behaviour and made me feel I need to I need to um, uh, 
show myself as a leader. I need to to be that leader. And I, 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 I want, you know, so I think I'd overcompensate for that. And people would, you know, people would say things like I'd be in, the, you know, I, I remember one day I had to deliver something. I was, you know, as I was a trainer for this southeastern London. I used to deliver equal opportunities training and um, employment law. And what I would do is I'd think I would I'd finish the training course and, you know, people were always very pleased with this. And then somebody would go um, after the evaluation. Oh, she was very eloquent. And yeah. The, the, the types of feedback that I'd get was, you know, for, for some people would be, you know, very happy with it. But I thought, what were you expecting that I was going to speak in a way? You, you, it, it just it made it, it was very interesting to hear some of the feedback I got compared to my white counterparts. Let's put it that way. You know, mm. and then I began to feel, you know, it's people that made me f- feel different. I didn't feel different going into it, but it's the feedback and the reactions of other people that made me feel a, a, a different oh. type of leader. And I needed to be a different type of leader and I need to show up as a leader and I needed to be forceful as a leader. And I need to, you know, work doubly as hard to uh, to for, for my voice to be heard, you know, because, you know, I often felt that I'd be in meetings and I could say the sky is blue, but somebody else could say the sky is blue. Oh, they say that's a great idea. And I'd be like, hold on. Haven't I just said that? Right. <laughs> you know, and things like that. So it it began to make me a bit annoyed about things. And then I began to be a bit more forceful in things, you know, so I wasn't having it, Melody. So I would be be like advocating for my colleague who might say something so I would be more forceful about saying you know and as Melody has just said you know I just like to back that up and we begin to began to advocate for people and I think that's when advocacy and Uh stuff like that came in because the only way we can change hearts and minds is to first of all confront people with it raise awareness of it people to deal with their own unconscious bias because it's not my issue it is your issue that you have it but make people aware that they may have it we all have it you know we we all have Mm. our terms and we can only leave it with the people to do it and not make it our problem you know so me as a leader Mm -hmm. I have got some things that I need to work on but I am a super damn bloody fiercely a leader and I will always advocate for others that want to do the same now I find myself as a leader being different in different spaces just because I'm a black Nigerian in born in Britain right so there are certain sort of customs that you will do in the Nigerian tradition uh, that I wouldn't do you know with my western friend or westernized friends and they they, they could be uh, you know of any color but you know I, I, I I'm just saying mm. that you know for me when I'm in my uh, leadership in my basketball uh, team I might act very differently depending on the audience because you know as opposed to you know in the workplace and leadership changes because you know when you're dealing with some sensitive stuff when it comes to especially when it comes to thing things of um, topics around EDI well-being mental health I think compassion has to come into it and you know I am developing as a leader and being much more compassionate in my approach to leadership because I think it's really required and people are very often secretive about who they are 
and who they want to be because they feel that they have to be who the organisation assesses them, who they, they need to be. And that can often cause anxiety and dishonesty in what people mm. share. Because they're behaving or being or appearing to be how they think Absolutely, they ought to be. Absolutely, Melody. And that, mm. I think, causes anxiety for people and, you know, you know, can really conflict with where they feel their leadership style should be or where it's always been and who they mm. are. And because there's much more, there's awareness about people's identity, where people come from, I think that you'll, you'll find that there's lots of people in the system that are just understanding this for themselves, especially as we've began to identify and admit more about what's happened in our care systems with the Nigerian care systems with a lot of Nigerians that were being fostered out to families and what's happened to them all of these silent things have now come out I've I've just learned that there has been many people that I know in prominent positions that were fostered out when they were young and the impact they had with white families oh. um, adopting them you know being abused, some not being abused, some being treated well, some being treated appallingly, all of this type of things that are now just coming out. It is, you know, there's so much to unravel with how we've been assimilated into this society and what has, what has happened to us, to many of us, and what has been hidden that is now just unravelling right now for us and how that is shaping you know, how we move forward, you know, because we don't want this to happen to future generations. We don't want people to be hiding who they are. But, you know, this is, you know, me me, me as a black woman, as I said, I, I think I am fairly agile, I think, in my approach to things. But there are certain cultural uh, values and beliefs that I have that I will always stick to. And it's honesty, finding the, the best out of, uh, of an individual, treating people with compassion, building relationships and collaborating with people that are different than yourselves, because that's when we truly start to learn uh, about things outside mm -hmm. of our own culture. But not forgetting, understanding your own culture has some dynamics and twists and turns to it. You know, mm. our Nigerian coach, if you can imagine, the Niger Nigeria is three times the size of the UK. When I was growing up, Nigeria was this big. England was this big. I didn't understand the scale until I, had, I began to understand mm. the, the true scale of things, you know, and, and, and how things were appearing to me, which is why I I'm, mm. I'm, I'm in fiercely in search of the truth, you know, which is one of my mantras. Now, just link to that, I'm going to ask you some of the, the um, some more sort of yeah. standard questions that I ask people. But this month, I've been interviewing a few people during Black History Month. Um, and I'm curious as to your view on Black History Month or other similar things like Black History Month? What's your perspective? I remember when I was growing up, I used to think, what is this Black? Why are we doing Black History Month? Why are we doing it in a Why is history in a month, you know, first of all? And then why is Black History? But then I thought, fine, you know, nothing of it. You know, I used to find it fun, you know, learning about Black History in a positive light because, you know, many of the my previous experience had been always in servitude or slavery or something, you know, that was the only history that was spoken about 
in school, apart from what my mum and dad used to teach us, thank goodness, which was more, uh, you know, about the history of Africa, you know, and it didn't start with slavery. Mm. Um, and so I, for me, for my learning, began to understand about a lot about my colleagues and Caribbean history. So it was, you know, and I, and I, I didn't have a clue about some of those things that had happened, you know, so I began to read more into some of that, you know, um, where people were taken, you know, where people landed in America. And I began to link it with American history and that sort of thing. So for me, black history was a way to spark curiosity for continued learning. It wasn't the be on and end all of it. So I can understand when people are talking about history shouldn't just be a, a month. I can understand, you know, people's frustration that it should be part of the curriculum. History is history. And I think it is about time mm -hmm. that history needs to be subsumed into the curriculum, because if it's not taught in the eyes of young inquisitive minds then we've lost it it just becomes this thing you know so I think it's great to spark something but I also think it needs to be part of the curriculum because to raise awareness we need to have awareness of it to spark it like it did for me but it you know and away from just the slavery issue it needs to spark mm. something else which builds on something that has already happened in our early curriculum life so whilst I applaud it and there are lots of things that people are learning in our organisation, I think we're just putting a plaster over a festering wound and we really need to start to mend that wound, which is the missing history, our missing history. We've all had history and there has been black people, Asian people on, the, on this earth, you know, BC wise. So come on, let's let's include all our histories as part of a history mm. curriculum for all. That is what I'd say about that. A question I have for you is about uh, advice to your younger self. I was very shy as a young person. And maybe that was because I was, as growing in, up in Nigeria, I was told we was, you know, you'd seen but not heard. And there were so many things I had to say as a, as a child to my mum, my dad, about things that was bothering me and things that were that I was bothered about in the culture or I wanted to know more about the culture. I was confused with elements of our culture. So, for example, in the Nigerian culture, you're told to, if you're greeting a man, you are told to what they call prostrate. So it was almost like bow, just for a sign of respect. Mm. And for a woman, you kind of sort of had to curtsy. That was kind of the... Whenever we all saw that, that was in front of a queen. So I was very confused by it, but you just had to do it. There was no question. This is a culture, you know, but I, I'd wanted to have a discussion. I, I wish I'd, be, you know, so I wish I'd been braver and bolder to ask some of the questions mm. that were always in my mind that I kept because of the respect that I had for my parents that I didn't. And now my dad is dead. There's not, you know, my dad died when I was 15 there was never a chance for me to ask those questions because I asked some of those questions to my mum now, which is fine, but I never got the opportunity to ask those questions to my dad. And, you know, he was a, he was born in the North 
and my mum was born in the West and they were never supposed to marry because they were from two different tribes. And I always wanted to ask them how, and I feel that's why I've got like a bit of rebelliousness in me. How did they get together and how was that accepted? You know what I mean? There's all sorts of, you know, questions that I had mm. in my head to answer as a child. And I just wish I'd been bold enough, even if I got smacked or whatever, but I just wish that I had mm. been, you know, for me and my younger self, I wanted to know more about my tradition and why certain things were done in the way, because being away from the tradition and working in a westernized way where those traditions were frowned upon, it was really difficult to operate in it, you know, and I wanted to respect my parents Mm -hmm. as much as possible. But I, I began to think I just didn't want anything to do with Africa. I just didn't want any. And I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about that. And it wasn't wasn't because I was dissing it. It's because I was being made to feel different in a derogatory way outside of where my Mm. parents ever felt. And I never spoke to my parents about this. It was something that we were holding as children that parents weren't aware of. So, yeah, I wish I was. Yeah, I I wish, you know, because I think Mm. that there would be more explanation as to why I struggled with being African growing up as a child you know and 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 reclaiming that back now since the events of George Floyd and and other things that have happened in my life that has helped me reclaim that back. Mm. We say some more about that about how that those events helped you reclaim. So Meta for example was a significant one where I was thrust with and collaborated with a group of ethnic minority leaders who were strong in their own way and we would talk about identity that was one of the things that we wanted to talk about and of course I had to Mm. talk about that myself so in talking about that that myself and helping people to share their own experience of that has helped me reclaim that because when when people would say why don't you say your full why don't you ever say your full name you know, and that was it all. Why do you use an English name? And, you know, all of these types of questions will be able to do that in a safe space. And it made you really think about that. And so that's when I decided, you know, that I would introduce myself. And I said to people, you know, when I'm going to go to on Meta, I'm going to introduce myself as Omatola Oluwa Fumulaya Ayola, because that is my name. You know, my mum gave me Omatola, my grandma, grandmother gave me Oluwa Fumulaya. And it means something, you know, in our tradition. So why aren't I claiming it? You know, it's all of that. So, yeah, so I think it it started, I guess it, it ended there and, it, you know, and, and, and it strengthened throughout there. But I've always been inquisitive, you know, I've always been inquisitive. Why? Through the learning of history, you know, through the moments of Black History Month and thinking about some of these things. And why are we doing this? And why are we doing that? And thinking about all of that learning. And then the George Floyd thing just, I guess, just made me think you know what people see you as black people it doesn't matter what happens in society you're a black woman who is from a Nigerian heritage born in the UK we are going to have different experiences so people need to hear it right we're we weren't born in Africa but we do have heritage there right so that's why my mum took us when we were 13, because we thought we were being too West nice. We, we, we went there for six weeks and we've been back since. And I love the fact that we have gone there because we needed to. All right. 
my me and my experience we spoke about you know the Shakespeare thing if I feel it I can feel it you know mm. so immersing me in that experience was was the, the the best thing that my parents could have done for us and so having that experience you know meeting my grandma my grandparents all my aunties uncles my array of cousins all of those types of people just kind of made it real for me and they all had Nigerian names they were all beautiful you know swam all the things that I thought black people didn't do were CEOs of their companies were accountants were pharmacists were this with that you know nobody spoke in uh, nobody spoke about black they spoke about their religion, you know, they're coming from the north or they're coming from, you know, they never, mm. you know, it's only here that people speak about blackness and whiteness and this, that and the other. And it's and it was very interesting to, you know, kind of hear the different worlds. And I feel privileged to be in those experiences because I have experiences that nobody else has probably had, you know, that I can actually share, you know, being there and being here. And and then how does that manifest it them that self it, in, in, in my leadership, you know, all, how do I gauge all those experiences and shape the way I, I am, you know, you know, born from, a, you know, from the first generation who came here, you know, that's, that's my experience. So we're, we're still, we're still dealing with this stuff, you know, we're still learning, we, we don't say we've got there yet, but this is something that keeps evolving, and, and we'll keep talking about it. But I will say significant moments like Meta, George Floyd, you know, that made me think, you know what, it's that is a tragedy and we in death we do not want to be mourning what we could have done in life we want to be saying what can be done and help bring people with us and that is my mission because when I'm six feet under mm. yeah great you know I'd love people to mourn but whilst I have life and breath in my body that is when I have a voice and unless I lose it I will use it you know, I have the privilege to have sight, hearing, voice, movement, all of those things that people take for granted. So I will use that to the best of my ability. And my experiences are my experiences. It may not be somebody else's. And that's the, the clear message. I want anybody that comes after me to be better. My parents have always said that. I want you to be better than I, you know, and that's what happens. You know, you want people to evolve and change things for the better. Tola, it's just so beautiful. I'm actually really moved by what you just said. I think that's beautiful what you just expressed. You're welcome. So thank you. I have two final questions for you. Uh, one is uh, a book that you would recommend to podcast listeners that's been influential on you. Let me, there were two books. I think that I'm I'm reading. I, I'm not very successfully, but I'm reading because of my the leader leadership journey that I'm on, right? And it's all around um, coactive leadership. It's by by Karen and Henry Kimsey House, and it's coactive leadership, and it's five ways to lead. And the reason why this has had had such an impact on my life. Because I am, I guess I'm continually on a journey of leadership and I feel that there are five dimensions as leadership, you know. So check out that book. It is amazing. It's had such an impact on my life and the way I lead. And this is for anybody. And it's, it's, it's coactive is all about how you co-lead, you know, from all those different dimensions. All right. So that was a really, really impactful book for me the other the other small book 
that, that I've come across. Um, and it's a book by um, June Sarpong and it's called The Power of Privilege. And that was, is an amazing, and it's a short book and it's, you know, it has some really good nippets in it. The last one I'm going to talk about is something called Game Storming. It is really, I mean, Game Storming is by Dave Gray, Sunny Brown, and James Makunufo, right? And it's a playbook for innovators, rule breakers, and change makers. I absolutely love the title. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it gives, but it will energize your brain and mobilize your creativity. And I think that some of the things that you're saying, it just gives some, um, you know, some 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 ideas around how to brainstorm things, how to deal with um issues and how to come to solutions in a creative way and it's absolutely an amazing book so I flick through that sounds good yeah yeah so those are those are those are the the, the interesting ones currently right now fab right last question is what would you give your what title would you give your story multiticity Ooh, <laughs> that's a great word <laughs> I don't, is that a word really know. you know it should be even if it isn't I, if it isn't, and 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 the reason why I say that there is, whilst I am a, you see a black female woman, that's probably what you first see, and because I've described my title as the head of leadership, I'm in a, in a senior leadership role. You know, I I, I describe myself, I've made it. Uh, however, listening to my story, you can see there is many layers to me and I think that if you and I Melody had not had this relationship perhaps that is all you would have seen and have assumed so what I would say is be curious be continue to be who you are Melody because your curiosity has led us here building relationships with others and and being curious about where people come from and asking them some questions and not being afraid, being bold and brave, uh, like I should have been, um, you know, of the questions that I wanted to ask my family and my dad, especially when he was alive, are the things that give us this multiplicity. I can't even say the word, but, you know, and I think it's fabulous. And, you know, if I if I had an image, it would be just loads of different colours, rainbow colours, you know, just splodged into, you know, there's no order. It's just it's just creation. You know, there is just something beautiful and magical about life and about people's experiences that if they dare to share, they, they would be surprised about how much people will learn from it and gauge from it. And we are making history by telling a story on the 27th of October 2023 at this time. This is history. History is always a moment in time, mm. something. And if we don't share it, it is missing or it's deemed not historical. Mm. So share it. Love it. Absolutely. Multi I can't even say it either now. Multi sister. I think we've just made up a word. We're not Googling it now. I think we, <laughs> we, now. I think <laughs> Don't we care. are. It's I our word. We, yeah, you can. Yeah, we'll yeah. get it in the. If it's not in the uh, Oxford English yeah, Dictionary we'll in, in a few years' time, it'll be in there. And right here, right now, we'll claim that word. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Tola. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Um, I 
yet again have learned so much and uh, I hope you've enjoyed telling your story. I have enjoyed it Melody and thank you for inviting me it has been a pleasure um, and I hope that you know somebody um, gains something from listening to this. I'm sure lots of people will. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by Liberare Consulting with editing provided by Hawkins Social. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not click on the subscribe button so you are the first to hear about new episodes. We look forward to welcoming you back soon.